Welcome to Talk Plus Water, the podcast associated with the Texas Plus Water newsletter, which provides timely information on the spectrum of Texas water issues, including science, policy, and law. Texas Plus Water is published jointly by the Meadows Center for Water and the Environment at Texas State University, the Texas Water Journal, and the Texas Water Resources Institute at Texas A&M University. You can sign up for Texas Plus Water by visiting texasplusWater.org slash newsletter. My name is Todd Bottler, and I'm the editor-in-chief of Texas Plus Water and the Texas Water Journal, as well as your host for Talk Plus Water. This is podcast number 10. My guests today are Clint Wolf and Daniel Cunningham. Clint Wolf is the project manager for the Water University at Texas A&M University AgriLife. Clint facilitates a team of water resource professionals to assist with water research and outreach programming, including water quality, water use efficiency, and watershed planning. He works with local governments, state and federal agencies, and other entities to develop programs dealing with water quantity and quality issues. Clint specializes in program development, stakeholder facilitation, communications, and marketing. Daniel Cunningham is also with us. Daniel's a horticulturalist at the Water University at Texas A&M University AgriLife. Daniel teaches professionals uh, and the public the most current sustainability information about landscape water use, including design, plant selection, and water-conserving landscape management practices. His primary focus is a holistic approach to landscaping and food production systems. Daniel specializes in native uh, plants and trees, vegetable gardening, edible landscaping, rainwater harvesting. He's also passionate about utilizing landscapes as habitat for beneficial wildlife. So with all that, welcome Clint and Daniel, and thank you for being part of Talk Plus Water. Thank you. So, Clint, Daniel, let's start out with your backgrounds in water. How did you first become involved with, with water issues? Uh, yeah, so this is Daniel. Um, so I guess I first got started uh, doing undergraduate research in West Texas. Um, we were looking at native plant species, um, isolating plants that would uh, do well in an, an urban setting. And uh, we had extreme drought during that time. And so just seeing uh, how well that the native plants handled uh, the extreme heat and drought of West Texas. Um, and I enjoyed that so much that decided to pursue it, uh, a master's program that took me um, to uh, Northwest Kenya, the Turkana region, one of the driest parts of Africa where they get um, about five inches of rainfall a year, um, developing food production systems, uh, harvesting water in the ground and through cisterns um, to help feed a people that were in need. So um, hopefully taking some of those same principles uh, here to urban North Texas, uh, trying to get folks to save water on a larger scale. Oh, that's great. Clint? Well, this... This is Clint, and uh, my, my story is not as cool as Daniel's. Uh, I actually applied for a job as an undergrad <clears throat> in, in college. I was actually getting a degree in animal science, and I have a degree in animal science, um, and didn't know what I wanted to do after getting my bachelor's. 
was actually working uh, for Dr. Alan Jones at the Texas Water Resources Institute, and he said there will always be a job in water in Texas. So um, I ended up getting my master's in natural resource economics um, with a focus on water issues, and so um, just became passionate about all the the realms and issues related to water. Um, so that's how, kind of how I got started. Well, that's, that sounds pretty cool to me. Uh, I like that. So. Uh, tell me about the program that you're both part of and how it can help anyone who's interested in saving water and and what other benefits it provides. And also, you know, tell me a little bit about how you came up with the name. Sure, this is Clint. Um, we started uh, Water University about 11 years ago. Um, we didn't call it Water University then. It was called the Urban Water Program um, based out of the uh, AgriLife Research and Extension Center here in Dallas. And our primary focus was looking at uh, water from an urban issue standpoint. So looking at water quality, urban landscape issues related to water conservation and use efficiency, um, and really looking at how we can affect and change behavior of our, our local homeowners uh, who are probably a large water user, especially during the summer months here in, here in Dallas. So uh, with the program, Water University, we conduct about 20 different um, uh, topics related to uh, native and adaptive plants, DIY irrigation, classes on fruit and vegetable production, composting, uh, you name it, if it has to do with water or ties into water management or stormwater management, uh, we'll, we'll teach classes on it. Uh, we'll often joke that some of our classes don't actually um, when, when you first look at them, don't actually scream water conservation, but we call that our bait and switch because we started off teaching classes called landscape water conservation and uh, we had trouble getting the seeds filled, but we call it butterfly gardening. Uh, we get 300 <laughs> people. So, uh, that's kind of, uh, kind of how we have converted over the years, uh, trying to get people what, they're, what people are really interested in and hot topics and relating them back to water conservation and stormwater management. Um, if you come to any one of our classes, they range from an hour to two hours in length. The first 15 minutes, you're going to get in the lesson on the water cycle, where your water comes from, how important it is to uh, protect water quality, and how to conserve water in the landscape. So uh, that's a given, and most of our partners uh, agree to that and are, are very happy that we do that. Sure. Yeah, this is Daniel, and, and I think, you know, Clint mentioned our partners, and that's really critical, I think, um, you know, with the success that we've had as a program, is we partner with 40 different uh, cities and municipalities across the north-central Texas region, and, and actually across the state of Texas, over 100 different community partners that have um, a similar message and uh, building on what they've done and, and, and helping them out. Um, and homeowners are definitely a main target, but we also target landscape architects. We harvest, uh, target um, irrigation specialists, rainwater harvesting specialists, and now have been doing more work with uh, homeowners associations and developers trying to get water conservation um, kind of uh, designed into uh, urban areas from the, the ground floor. So, yeah, we kind of. Oh, sorry. Go, go ahead. Go ahead, please. I was just going to say, uh, Water University, we have our, kind of our tagline for our program is, uh, 
you can't get a degree, but you can get an education. So um, that's what our goal is to uh, educate people on all issues related to water. And so you're you're located in in Dallas uh, or Fort Worth, right? We're yes, we're located in Dallas. Okay, but you do work all over the state. And so do you hold the workshops in different parts of the state? Yeah, this is Clint. So like Daniel mentioned earlier, we we try to do um, our programs with our, our partners. And a lot of our partners are uh, municipalities or water providers. And so we actually go to the people. We found that uh, most people don't want to drive over 20 minutes to a program if they will drive to a program at all. And so we actually host, um, the cities are our host, and we actually go to their facilities and teach our classes. We do teach classes at our research facility um, here in Dallas. We've been under construction for the past two and a half years, so we are uh, we just built a brand new building, so we're going to be anxious to get uh, classes back here at our campus uh, this fall. Um, but yeah, we found it easier to go to the people. Um, we actually, not only during our classes, but whenever there's an event um, where people are actually going already, so Earth Day activities, any kind of outdoor activities, um, having uh, booths or presence there and handing on information or giving small talks, um, that's kind of been our mantra of how we, how we reach people the best. Okay, so, um, you know, we've all heard at some point that Texas is a state in perpetual drought interrupted by the occasional flood. So I'm curious, what does it mean when we refer to drought-proofing our landscape? What, what, is, what does that uh, really entail? Yeah, that's a great question, Todd. This is Daniel. And, and that's actually something we say a lot. I like to quote the iconic Texas weatherman, Harold Taft, that the only way to end a drought is with a flood. And really, I think this past year um, in north central Texas, but also I know in central Texas they saw this, um, where we had the driest growing season that we had in 109 years. So mm. from March 1st to July 25th, it was extremely dry. And then in the fall, we had record rainfall, record September, October, um, making it the second wettest year on record. So, um, you know, I think it was a good year to kind of drive home that. But basically, we teach people how to drought-proof landscape uh, by thinking about landscape design holistically. We take into account multiple facets of water conservation, including irrigation efficiency, but also stormwater management. Um, and then we also look at not only plant, but soil health, uh, considering beneficial wildlife, passive heating and cooling. Uh, we want to reduce our water footprint also by reducing waste through composting and growing some of our own food at home. Um, and really, kind of looks like some of these extreme uh, uh, that we're seeing in our climate are going to happen uh, frequently if we listen to the climate scientists. And so these hard weather patterns and conduction uh, and conjunction with our rapidly growing population really pose some challenges. Um, I will say it's a little bit of a harder sell to talk about water conservation when most of our Texas lakes are full. Um, yeah. uh, but we like to say and the best times to plan for drought or the times when we are seeing floods and vice versa, when we're seeing extreme weather patterns, excessive floodings, then we can plan for drought as well. 
Clint, do you have anything you want to add? Yeah, so I think that we, as as Daniel mentioned, we uh, extreme weather weather patterns is that, you know, the plant pallets we have today are probably not going to be the plant pallets that we have tomorrow. And so we have to continually look at, uh, as we become more urbanized and more populated, um, our yards are getting smaller, so our plants have to get smaller. We always joke that, you know, when you go and you see now a lot of dwarf varieties in, in the in the uh, garden centers, it's because our our... Our landscapes are getting smaller. We're living in high rises or zero lot line homes, and so we're having much more concrete and less open green space. And so that has impacts not only on uh, water use, and, you know, for outdoor water use, but also on stormwater management and the quality of water that's running off of those surfaces. So, um, like Daniel said, we try to teach a holistic approach to. Um, conservation and stormwater management. So looking at the entire landscape and the footprint of your home as a source of not only water use, but water capture. And so um, looking at the beneficial ways of how we can, the water that actually falls on our on our landscape and on our property, um, how we can utilize it more than once to make it beneficial and go as far as we can. So, uh, you know, follow up um, to that, you're mentioning um, the many partners you've got around the state. Uh, I imagine uh, some of them are are water suppliers uh, and water utilities who are trying to find ways to, to stretch the supplies they have. And um, it sounds like um, there, there are probably a number of them that have kind of embraced the idea of, of getting people to use uh, their water for landscaping much more efficiently than they have in the past. Yes, so this is Clint. Um, we always we always have a fine line between uh, utilities wanting to sell water because that makes up a huge part of their budget, but also looking at conserving water and and the state water plan has most urban areas a huge percentage or twenty to thirty five percent of their new water supplies come from conservation, and so it's a balancing act with our cities on you know when when our lakes are full it's hard to sell conservation, um, but a lot of the cities here in North Texas are experiencing rapid growth. And so what comes with that is that uh, in order to maintain the supplies that they have without building new reservoirs or using alternative sources of water is that we have to stretch those water drops um, through um, growing populations. So um, it is a balancing act that we that we play with our partners on um, the need for conservation and also the need to uh, sell water. So... I, I, yeah, this is Daniel. I agree completely. I think um, definitely it's the, the easiest way to create new water supplies uh, affordably is through conservation. And um, I think that we are seeing a, a trend towards conservation going forward. And, and hopefully that with new technologies we're, will get us where we need to go. You know, I'm always, I'm always uh, um, uh, you know, really amazed at how we underestimated decades ago when I first started off in water management, you know, how, how much water waste there was and what the per capita use could become eventually without really impacting people's lives negatively. 
Yeah, I remember there was a lot of discussion when we were using, you know, close to 300 gallons per capita per day that you could never get anywhere near 140 or 120. But, but you know, there, there are some cities, I know the San Antonio Water System you know, is planning for less than 100 gallons per capita per day eventually. Yep. This is Clint. Yeah, so, and North Texas has always been, in the past, been known as kind of a, the water hog area. And I'm happy to say that I think that that trend is uh, very much on the downslope that um, North Texas has embraced conservation and has really, all of our major water providers, Dallas Water Utilities, Fraternity Regional Water District, North Texas Municipal Water District, and Terra Regional Water District have really come together to say conservation is important and really pushing that message forward to all of their customers and customer cities um, to, I mean... I think the average that used to be, you know, less than 20 years ago, probably about 200, 290 uh, GPCD. So, and we're pushing that down to, you know, closer to the 140 uh, number that uh, we would like to see and lower than that. So people are um, reacting to conservation and um, putting in technologies in place that will actually uh, benefit them. So just to move on to the next question, uh, I was thinking about a 2013 study that was published by the Texas Water Journal. Um, published, The authors were, were some of your colleagues or former colleagues at, at Texas A&M, and they found that urban irrigation was the third largest use of water in Texas behind uh, agricultural irrigation and other urban uses, which which I was pretty shocked about that when when I saw that. And so I'm, you know, I'm I'm just curious, you know, do we have a sense of like how much, you know, the average, you know, homeowner is is using for their lawns and, and all? Well this is Clint and I will say that those numbers don't surprise me knowing that um, lawns are the largest irrigated crop in the United States. So wow. if you take that in perspective, is that uh, our landscapes and in urban areas that we, we like, or people like green less landscaping, or they used to. Um, and I think we're seeing a, a decreasing trend in that as well, um, from traditional landscapes to more uh, drought-tolerant um, native adaptive landscapes. Um, yeah, and this is Daniel. Um, you know, you mentioned that study. There was another study that was done a few years before the Texas Water Development Board study that was showing in 2008 um, about 31% uh, of, of um, our potable water was used outside in the landscape. And in Dallas, we were a little bit higher than the state average at 41%. Um, some of the estimations also put us at, during the summer months, as much as 50 to 60% of outdoor water use um, uh and making up the you know total of our water use as a whole. So really, I think there's a lot of factors that play in there. We hope that we are trending uh, towards water efficiently, uh, you know, especially in a landscape setting. Uh, but I do think there's still room for improvement, and we have our jobs, jobs cut out for us for sure. So, you know, I grew up in Dallas, and I remember when I was uh, young, 
um, in the 70s that, you know, a lot of people didn't really have sprinkler systems. And, you know, you get to August and your lawn would turn brown and then, you know, it'd rain in September and, you know, lawn would be okay again. Uh, and then people started putting in sprinkler systems and, you know, uh, the lawn never turned brown again. And, uh, you know, water was was much cheaper then, uh, but I never really thought about this. You know, I'm very, I, I, I think about this a lot now, but, you know, the generally the water that we are putting on our lawns is water treated to drinking standards, which, you know, there's a billion people or more across the world would love to have that water and, or water like that, have access to water like that, but, you know, we're putting it on our lawns. Yes, this is Clint. So that's that's very important what you just said. So I think those, there are two issues: is that you said water was cheap, but I think water still is cheap. Right. And right. so until we have the real cost of instead of just the cost of you know treating the water and pushing it through a pipe, through actually put a actually value on water instead of you know a nominal fee for transporting it, um, people are going to continue to waste it. Or, or a certain population will continue to waste it. We also have to look at population growth. You're saying you uh, are from Dallas. Well, you know, 1,100 people now live in, move into the Metroplex um, a day, uh, roughly. And so we have huge spikes in population. And people coming from all, 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 you know, all over the world and all over the United States. And so we usually tell people, welcome to Texas, leave your plants at the border <laughs> because we don't want them bringing, we don't want them bringing their high water use plants with them. And so whenever we, whenever we talk to them and they say, oh, well, I didn't know, it's not because they don't want to be efficient, it's because they're not from here and so they don't know what to do. And so those people, people that are moving in are, are one of our target audiences and we do a new class called uh, the Newcomer's Guide to Gardening in North Texas and so either for first time homeowners or from people that are new to Texas learning what our soil conditions are how to how to water efficiently um, what plants to plant um, what questions to ask and so that's one, been one of our um, top new classes that we that we have another thing that you touched on was um, your systems. In the old days where we used to uh, turn on the water hose and set the timer and then it would go off and we went outside and moved the hose, some people would argue that we were more efficient then because we, we thought that the technology was going to make us more efficient. Um, and we've learned that um, people think that technology makes us more efficient, but behavior change makes us more efficient. And so um, it's much more difficult to change behavior than to, to change the irrigation setting. And so a lot of times what we practice and what we preach is telling people uh, to turn your system off and run it on manual. And they think that's like unfathomable why you would go backwards in time and, and, and do it the old-fashioned way. Um, but people, when you, when you see your system operate and when you're much more in tune with your landscaping, um, you'll utilize less chemicals, utilize less fertilizer, and you utilize less water because, and waste less because uh, you're actually um, more in tune with it. I mean, over time, you can save a lot of money, can't you? I mean, if you do all those things, I'm just that's that's what I I keep you know seeing in Austin with our water bill. Um, you know, I've got 
you know, kind of going back to what you're saying about, you know, people moving to Texas. So, you know, I'm, I'm very blessed to have, uh, you know, a, a, a wonderful wife who's from New Orleans. And, you know, the problem in New Orleans is too much water generally compared to here it's you know usually not enough and so uh, you know kind of the the whole idea of you know taking out your lawn and 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 putting in uh you know something that um is is maybe uh you know not, not something you would typically see uh, in in most lawns and in some of the places where you know, the kind of new native landscaping is showing up is, you know, it can be kind of a, a, a difficult thing for, for some people. Sure. Uh, Todd, this is Daniel. Um, and to speak to that, there's a lot of potential to save. Um, and one of the ways that we kind of transition people into the best management practices is with a demonstration home. So we've partnered with the EPA's WaterSense program, and we believe we have the only EPA WaterSense labeled home in the country that is open for public tours. We have thousands of people come visit a year. Um, and for those that aren't familiar with the WaterSense program, Program. It's really just like the Energy Star program is to energy efficiency. The WaterSense program is to, to water efficiency. Uh, but this demonstration house on our campus here in, in Dallas has all the best water saving features inside the home. But we also take that a step further uh, with a landscape that utilizes our landscape rule of thirds. And so that methodology reduces the typical large lawn dominated areas. So if we break up our landscape, to only about a third turf grass. Um, we have water-efficient turf grass varieties that have actually been developed here um, through the A&M system. Uh, and then we have about a third pervious surfaces, so surfaces that can infiltrate water, our patios, our sidewalks, um, our um, pathways throughout the garden. We have uh, dry riverbeds or arroyos. Um, and then the other third is made up of planted beds utilizing native and adaptive plant material, plant material that once it's established doesn't need a lot of supplemental irrigation that is kind of grown and evolved with our rainfall patterns here in north central Texas. And then we also utilize um, newest irrigation technology, multi-stream rotors, uh, which typically are about 60% more efficient when compared to the mist pipe nozzles there. We use drip irrigation in the flower beds. Um, and of course, the entire landscape is irrigated by our thousand gallon cistern and then we have two 55 gallon rain barrels there so um, we really try and practice what we preach and then have a hands-on demonstration where we can show folks how to do it so let me ask you a follow-up on that it it wasn't that many years ago that uh, it was real tough sell to get homeowners associations to approve you know kind of native landscaping uh for lawns and eventually there was a there was legislation passed uh by the texas legislature that made made it uh you know i guess illegal for an hoa to prohibit that and so you know i'm, I'm interested in kind of your reaction from hoas you know are do you find more and more of them who are really kind of keen on on getting involved with this or is it still kind of a 
a tough sell in certain parts of the state. Well, this is Clinton. You're referring to uh, Senate Bill 198. I think that was passed in two legislative sessions ago. And we were extremely happy when it was passed. Um, we do see some HOAs that will get on board and are um, interested in saving money um, by saving um HOAs have just the same issues as homeowners. They have large, expensive areas of either turf grass or landscape-embedded areas that they're having to irrigate. And so as the price of water goes up, the price of water for them goes up as well. And uh, in some of their larger, you know, expansive areas, you know, with tiered rate structures, the more they use, the higher the price gets. And so some of them have actually, yes, gotten on board and... We've actually done trainings for HOA associations and for their homeowners and also for the management companies that run HOAs to look at how they can become more efficient, what questions they need to ask their landscape co- excuse me, company, what are the technologies that they should be implementing. Um, but then we see others that are you know, strictly for strictly against them that we get home, calls every day from people that have taken our class and be like, I told my HOA about Senate Bill 198 and they don't want to listen to me. <laughs> and so we yeah. tell people uh, that uh, we're not here for legal advice, um, but just for education. And so, um, but it can be against 22. This is Daniel, and just kind of following up on that, yeah, unfortunately, there's no regulatory entity for HOAs or property owners association in the state of Texas. So for homeowners, uh, when their HOAs um, uh, don't want to uh, let them implement some of the, the, the practices of Senate Bill 198, um, their best line of defense is to either work with their HOA's landscape committee um, to get on uh, that board of the landscape committee and to get involved um, and to be nice and play nice. Um, the only other option really is to seek legal action. And, uh, you know, of course, that's not something we're experts in. Gotcha. So, Daniel, let me ask you about the native plants themselves. I mean, I, my, you know, my, I guess, uh, you know, interest is, you know, there are probably a lot of landowners who just don't really know um, that there are all sorts of, you know, really fantastic native plants that they can use, and and it may maybe it's more of kind of a, a process of introducing them to the varieties that are available and and um you know how they can really make a, a garden just look fantastic yeah so this is daniel um one of the biggest stigmas that i think we're still trying to 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 get past or the the myth that we hear is that native plants are weedy or people think about a native plant uh, landscape uh, that it's just all yuccas and cacti and rocks um, and it really couldn't be further from the truth. There are uh, many of the plants that are, are used in, in landscapes, commercial, residential, high-end landscapes um, not only in Texas but across the country that are actually native right here um, within our borders. Um, there are also improved cultivars of those plants, and Clint alluded to that, uh, that have been bred to be more compact and densely blooming, but still have the same heat tolerance and drought tolerance. Um, uh, they prefer our
our soil types that we have here and uh, just tend to do a better job growing in the harsh conditions that Texas has uh, to throw our way sometimes. And I think the bread and butter plants that people have planted in the 70s and 80s when water was cheap and we weren't really thinking about that really are tending to struggle. The other thing that we see a lot is some of the those plants, the non-adapted plants, um, have been planted uh, the same, you know, 10 plants in subdivisions all over the state, and they're seeing more pest problems because of that lack of diversity. So um, there's a lot of benefits to plant native plants, and, um, you know, because there are those myths that they're weedy or, you know, it's just these droughty, you know, yucca and cacti, we like to do demonstrations to show people whether that's in medians along the city or perhaps with HOA situations or or even at our new demonstration landscape coming in on our landscape, really to have a landscape where people can walk through and regardless of if the plant is water efficient, just enjoy and want to plant the plant because it looks pretty. And I think that's something everybody can get behind. One of our things, this is Clint, one of our things is we have our top 100 plants of North Texas, and so it's about 80% native plants. And when most people are like, oh, I didn't know that was a native plant. And so, um, like Daniel said, most people think that they're weedy and unkept, but you can have uh, any kind of landscape that you want, whether it's tropical, whether you want a cottage garden look, if you want whatever style of, of of landscaping that you like, you can get that with native and adaptive plants that are low water use for your region. So, and that's kind of how we have to tell people. A lot of people are visual, and so they don't know what plants go with which plants, and so that's kind of what we kind of, one of our goals is that we try to teach people through demonstrations and through plant groupings, um, through our classes, we show people this is what goes together because some people will do the right thing, they just don't know how to do it. So we say we have about 25% of the DIYers that, you know, you can give them a give them a pamphlet and they'll go and do it. The rest of them are just like, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And so we, that's we try to reach both of those customers um, through our programs. So let me pick up on something that you just mentioned, the, the DIY culture. Um, you know, how is that uh, played out in the the response that you see uh, to the workshops. I mean, I are, I'm sure that there are, there are probably some uh, companies, you know, who who are probably interested in in landscaping and um, you know saving water through landscaping. But but a lot of it seems like it's probably driven by the individuals who are just you know working on their own homes. Yeah, Todd, this is Daniel. You know, our, our DIY classes actually seem to be some of our most popular, and I think uh, because they appeal to those people that like to get their hands dirty, uh, but also kind of um, in terms of education, the DIY classes have greater potential to um, to actually uh, people have that muscle memory. They think they've done this before. Um, and so it really kind of gains that firsthand experience. And that could be with our rain barrel class, just installing the faucet for a rain barrel gains ownership in that barrel. A lot of, uh, there's other programs where they simply pick up the barrel and they go and are supposed to set it up on their own, but we have an hour, an hour and a half long class where we actually work with them and show them the ins and outs of harvesting water. Um, 
kind of pairing it with the education, uh, but we also do that with some of our other classes, the wildflower uh, classes where we make seed bombs, uh, but all those create ownership, confidence, uh, where people can replicate those tasks at home, and we've actually seen with surveys that people install and maintain uh, the, the rain barrels, for instance, when those hands-on components are included. And I'll add to that, this is Clint. We... Our biggest thing is we want people to be a better educated consumer. So we can look at TV and we can look at Facebook and we can look at um, the advertisements that, that are being pushed to us on a daily basis on what to plant, when to spray, what to apply on our yards to make them green and gorgeous. Um, but we want people to be better educated consumers to look at the scientific data that and the information that we put out as a, as a state agency and, and as a... Uh, professionals in our field, um, research-based professional information that, you know, doesn't always go along with some of the, uh, the commercials that we see out there. Related to our DIYers, we've seen a huge shift in the, um, the number of people and the demographics of people that come to our class. I will say 11 years ago, um, that our typical audience was probably over 60 um, that liked, you know, flower gardenings and, you know, pot plants and things like that, hanging baskets. But we've seen a huge shift into a much younger population. Um, the uh, people that are just buying their house uh, for the first time, um, people with, uh, you know, kids and uh, 30 and 40 something. So um, we have seen a huge shift in, in the people that are wanting to grow their own vegetables and be more in tune and more um, sustainable in, you know, not only what they're eating into their mouth, but what actually the services that their kids play on. So um, they're very much more in tune with how much water they're using and what they're putting on their lawn. So if they're like me, they, they might think of their kids as some free labor, but it never really works out that way for me. I don't know why. It's just it's a lot more labor. Um, so let me ask you, you both have kind of mentioned rainwater harvesting. So um, let's talk about that. Uh, the I, I, you know, I'm sure a lot of people here rainwater harvesting and if they understand what it means um they may think oh gosh that's probably really difficult to do i've got to retrofit my entire house to do that um that's that's not necessarily the case so why don't you just you know tell us what rainwater harvesting is and uh you know what uh, what kind of things uh the uh the people that are you know you're working with can do Yes, so um, rainwater, this is Daniel, rainwater harvesting is just the, the process of capturing, diverting, and storing rainwater for future use. Um, rainwater can be used for any kind of um, uh, practice that you would normally use uh, municipal water from, especially outside in the landscape. It, it tends to be uh, salt-free, chlorine-free. You don't have um, any of the issues with that that we see, especially with tropical plants, the burning of the leaves, and really it's uh, the, the 
engineering or the mechanics of rainwater harvesting could be as simple or as complicated as you want. We, kind of our beginner class is that rain barrel class where we take recycled 55-gallon drums, HDP, plastic, so it's not leaching anything out. Um, and we could set those on the downspout of a gutter. We could set those just in the natural eave of a roof. And um, our typical uh, homes are going to harvest way more water that can fill into that barrel. Um, and so it's easy for people to see the barrel filling up. The other thing that we see quite frequently with those classes, the people that have graduated from those classes, is that they start to notice how quickly the water in a 55-gallon barrel is used out in the landscape. So maybe it could irrigate a 10 foot by 10 foot area to a depth of about six inches. And that may not be a whole lot. Um, and, and some of that, I think the people that, that um, aren't specifically sold on rain barrels um, will argue that it, real, it really is just a drop in the bucket. Um, but really, I think what we hit home with is that it's easy to do and it's uh, a simple way to educate people with the basics of rainwater harvesting, so much so that we see many people that have taken the rain barrel class um, will start to come back and get one, two, three, four rain barrels in addition, and then take our larger tank classes uh, where we focus on how we could harvest water in 250, 500 gallons, you know, a thousand gallon cisterns. Um, and then you really have a substantial amount of water to use on the entirety of the landscape. And um, there's even some classes that we would partner with, ARCSER, the American Rainwater Catchment Association, um, where people could, if they wanted to, get uh, different filtration systems and use that water inside. And we've done that uh, with our new water and land resource uh, building here on campus, where we have a 30,000-gallon cistern uh, and bring the water inside to flush the commodes, which is, is really exciting. It's a dirty job. <laughs> I'll, uh, this is Clint, and I'll kind of add to that. Um, our rainbow program is probably one of our most successful programs. We've done, in the Metroplex alone, about almost 25,000 barrels. Um, and in a typical rainfall year, year in North Texas, a 55-gallon barrel can collect on average in a normal year. Well, we don't really have normal years anymore, but over 2,000 gallons of water. And so... People see how fast it fills up, but they also see how fast it goes down. And so it, it makes people understand that water from the tap, we turn on the tap and it's always coming out. So we don't really have a value of water that is gonna run out. But once they have a rain barrel, and that's their water. They've captured it, they're in charge of it, and then when they utilize it and it's done, they become much more frugal with it on what I'm going to use my water for. Sure. Am I going to water my entire lawn? No, you're not. But am I going to water my very special plants that I love? Absolutely. And so people, it's an aha moment for them that they're... I say it's like a lake, like a lake level. As your lake goes down, you have to really conserve. You have to really, you know, until it rains again, have to really be um, cognitive of where you're going to use your water. And that's what what people do. And so I think those people that do rainwater harvesting really, really get it and understand that it's a behavior change and um, something that's very necessary. So. 
in addition to rainwater harvesting, you are also uh, providing some workshops on gray water, if, if I'm not um, mistaken. So why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about what gray water is and, and what types of things um, a homeowner can do regarding gray water? Yes, so we're definitely, this is Daniel, we're definitely proponents of gray water harvesting and uh, whether that's in the summer months using the AC condensate, that's a great source that, that anybody could use to water their plants. Uh, it also just happens that there is more AC condensate when the air conditioner is running. Um, there's also during the summer months, the heat of the summer, there's a greater demand for water. So um, the supply and the demand of, of that gray water kind of works out very well and it makes sense to, to put it on um, some of your woody plants and your landscape beds rather than just to send that down uh, the, the, the sewer or the storm drain. Um, the other thing uh, that, that's kind of an intro to gray water harvesting that some folks get into is the laundry to landscape. And so uh, sending the water from your, your uh, washing machine for your clothes, um, you would have to uh, change out your soaps there to low phosphate soaps, but there are plenty on the, on the market now that wash your clothes just as good. Um, and then you could water um, a variety of different plant material there. Uh, the challenge, however, with the laundry to landscape is if you have uh, that piped into certain areas of your, of your yard and then we're getting significant rainfall, in fact, record rainfall like we saw last year, uh, then you need to prevent over-irrigation, but you have to do something with the water coming from the laundry, and so many of those uh, will have um, a valve where you can switch it and actually uh, send that down to the black water channels as well if you don't need to utilize that water. Uh, but I think gray water is something, uh, as we move towards conservation, and especially if we do uh, see extended periods of drought, and perhaps the mega droughts um, that we see in the drought record, I think uh, definitely that's a technique um, that, that we haven't taken full advantage of yet. This is quite, and I think that one of the issues we have, too, is we have to, while we want all water systems to be safe, we also see that some of our cities are, they're proponents of conservation. They're not proponents of either rainwater harvesting or gray water use because of the issues of, you know, backflow prevention and making sure that they're not cross-contamination with our public drinking water supply. And we are all for safety of our drinking water supply. But we're also for looking at uses and smart uses of reusing the water that we've brought into our home multiple times before we send it down, you know, down to the black water line. So I always say we'll deal with any water until it turns to black water and then somebody else can deal with it. But um, we have to be better stewards of the water, reutilizing what we have multiple times, whether we use it indoors, then we use it outdoors before we send it on down to, to be treated again or down into uh, uh, the other system that will pick it up and then treat it again. So um, also saving costs on, you know, pumping and treating, but also uh, saving time and money too. So I think the big picture of looking at, we as we move towards looking at one as water as one source, uh, as rainwater and stormwater and all of those things as uh, um Collectively and holistically, I think we'll come up with better solutions on on how we can do that in the future. 
So you all have, uh, you know, referred to this a couple of times, and I haven't asked you about it yet, but, uh, you know, food production. You know, you're also uh, helping people uh, with growing some vegetables uh, in their backyards and, and around their homes. And uh, why, don't you, why don't you talk a little bit about that? Because it seems like, you know, there's a I mean, there's obviously this, you know, a, a, a movement towards getting your your food, especially your, your vegetables locally. Um, but, I, you know, there's I, I'm guessing there's a, a similar movement um, uh, towards, you know, growing some of that yourself. Yeah, you're exactly right, Todd. This is Daniel. Um, back to a study that was published uh, two years ago showed that um, 33% of the uh, American population is now growing some of their own food at home, and that's really? wow. the highest number we've, we've seen in decades. Um, so uh, to, to kind of speak to that, we um, kind of cater to that clientele of people that do want to grow some of their own food, whether that's in traditional vegetable gardens, kind of road type, or edible landscapes. A lot of folks in urban areas are limited in terms of space, and so um, you can incorporate edible plants throughout um, your ornamental landscapes, kind of taking um, uh, multiple use of, of that same plant. Uh, we encourage people to plant um native and adapted and more drought tolerant vegetables and fruits um, and then with the ones that they are growing that perhaps they're going to use more water than some of the other plants we just want to show that if you incorporate compost, if you mulch properly incorporate drip irrigation uh, perhaps even rainwater harvesting, you can be very efficient with the water you're using to grow some of your own food and then also if you are growing food locally in your own backyard um, you're reducing your water footprint that's associated with buying and transporting our food to our doorstep. So the average uh, piece of, of fruit at a grocery store travels about 1,200 miles to get to our doorstep. And if you're buying organic, um, like many folks like to do, um, that could be as high as 1,300 miles. And so there's water associated with uh, refining the fuel and creating the tires and, and everything through that process. So um, there's a lot of reasons why we would want to grow food at home, but still important uh, that we keep water conservation and stormwater management in mind when we do that. So we've been talking about water, but, um, you know, there's also an air pollution component to to some of um, what you're talking about. I know that, um, you know, mowing your lawn, you know, produces a lot of CO2, uh, and um, just you know, kind of interested in the future. You know, that's that's not been um, is uh, you know much of a focus. But I'm you know wondering if that might be more of a focus in the future. Is is uh, we move toward, especially cities, move toward trying to reduce their their uh, carbon footprint. Yeah, I think so. This is Clint. Um, we see a lot of people looking at, you know, utilizing, you know, old school real mowers and uh, electric mowers. But we're also seeing uh, on a bigger scale is that um, cities and parks going, instead of having expansive park areas, having uh, smaller park areas that are 
you know, have high intensity areas for, you know, soccer and baseball and those activities, but then also having the uh, area away from those being converted more into prairie areas. And so prairie areas just came out of studies that are about as beneficial as sequestering CO2 as, you know, trees are. And so we are seeing a huge resurgence in, in the urban area as having pocket prairies and letting some of those areas go back to or converting them back into native and more wild areas for um, not only for wildlife habitat, for butterflies, um, but for also for just what you said, for air quality issues and for reducing um, our footprint on, on maintenance costs and, sure. and water costs and those type of activities as well. And we actually have one of those demonstrations on our campus as well. So uh, in about two months, we'll be completely done with construction and open and hope people will come up and see our um, Benny Jason's an eco park and our uh, four acre demonstration gardens and our water sent house. And so, um, trying to practice what we preach and, and put our feet on the ground here. But Dan, I probably have some more to add to that topic. Um, I know, I think you covered that uh, great. Um, I think all those reasons are important. Um, definitely two cycle uh, motors that we see a lot with landscape equipment are, are polluters. And so um, if we reduce uh, our lawn areas and incorporate um, woody plants, native and adaptive plants, prairie plants, um, then for sure, not only can we help with uh, air pollution, but reducing maintenance cost, I think, is, is a big thing, especially for commercial areas. So I, you know, I want to come see your new facility when it opens up because it sounds like it's really going to be fantastic. We'll send you an invitation. Yeah, we'd love to have you. Oh, great! Thank you. So um, I'm gonna we're gonna wrap up with this last question. Um, so you know, how can people find out more about what you're doing? There's there's got to be uh, some websites or social media contacts that you can. Um, provide to our listeners so they can follow up our conversation and learn more about your programs there at the Water University. Sure, this is Clint. So our main website is wateruniversity.tamu.edu. And so there you can go and find out all of our upcoming classes. They'll all be posted there, um, wherever city that we'll be in or um Find out information on um, soil health. Our plant search database is on our website as well. Information on on lawn care, rainwater harvesting, um, plant selection, um, maintenance and, and best management practices, as well as some of our uh, DIY guides as well, and also our how-to videos. So one of the biggest pushes we've had recently is um, through social media and through those channels, uh, we can't get to everyone, and not everyone wants to sit through a two-hour class. And so we have a whole host of DIY videos on our website and on our YouTube page. Um, which can be linked from our, our website um, on, you know, very specific things on uh, changing an irrigation nozzle to how to plant a plant, uh, how to prune um, plants, um, how to conduct a catch-can test, um, all of those activities that can make you be uh, more water efficient in the landscape. Um, and some really cool videos as well. So, uh, and Daniel is our uh, social media expert. Um, so I'll let him talk about our Twitter and his Twitter and 
things like that. Yeah, so if people want to follow us on social media, they just have to search uh, at AgriLife Water U, and we're there on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Also, if you type in at uh, AgriLife Water U on YouTube, you can find our channel. I'm at TX Plant Guy on all those platforms as well. Um, and uh, it's a great way to, to interact. We would love to hear back um, from your listeners. Uh, also, it's a great way to answer questions. We um, like to interact with the public as much as possible and uh, answer questions to help them grow a, a more lush, vibrant, water-efficient lawn landscapes or vegetable garden. And uh, so, yeah, if people want to hit us up at AgriLife Water U or at TX Plant Guy, we'd love to connect. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, Clint, Daniel, this has really been great. I've really enjoyed our conversation, and it's a timely one with uh, August just around the corner. So thank you for joining me today on Talk Plus Water. Awesome. We had a pleasure of having Thanks for having us. Appreciate it. Ah, great. Well, this has been Talk Plus Water, the podcast associated with the Texas Plus Water newsletter, which provides timely information on the spectrum of Texas water issues, including science, policy, and law. My guests today were Clint Wolf and Daniel Cunningham, who are part of Texas A&M AgriLife's Water University. Texas Plus Water is published jointly by the Meadows Center for Water and the Environment at Texas State University. And the Texas Water Journal and the Texas Water Resource Institute at Texas A&M University. You can sign up for Texas Plus Water by visiting texasplusWater.org slash newsletter. My name is Todd Bodler. I'm the host of Texas Plus Water. Let's talk water again soon.